Thank you. Well, let's pray that God would help us to think about those passages and their uh, meaning for us. Our Heavenly Father, please give us clear minds and open hearts as we reflect on your word to us today. Please teach us, correct us and change us and point us in good directions. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know whether you've picked up on this over recent years, but uh, environmental activists have been targeting some of the great works of art around the world uh, in an effort to raise awareness about climate change. So you can learn that some uh, works of art have had paint thrown at them, others have had maple syrup, soup, mashed potato, and some people have even glued themselves to the artwork. In May of last year, uh, the Daily Mail reported that the Mona Lisa itself was attacked but with a custard pie uh, by a man who disguised himself as an elderly woman in a wheelchair. He went in, you know, threw the custard pie at the Mona Lisa, shouted, think of the planet, uh, before being dragged away by security. Now, you'll be pleased to know that the Mona Lisa has protective glass, but imagine if the Mona Lisa had been struck by that custard pie. It would have been damaged. Or imagine, worse still, if someone had got to the Mona Lisa with a knife and had been sort of ripping at it. What a horrible thing to happen. Now, if you'd looked at the Mona Lisa after that, what would you have seen? Well, if you'd looked at it with the discerning eye of an artist or an art critic, you would have thought you would have still seen the great signs of, you know, artistry in it. You would have recognised its greatness. But you would have been horribly aware of how damaged it was as well and how much it had been wrecked. Now, I sometimes say that life and the world today is like a ruined masterpiece. Not hard to look around at some of the incredible things in the world and in our lives, but even a cursory glance at the news this week or a half-honest look around at our family and friends and acquaintances shows that there is a lot of mess in the world. Uh, there's Israel and Palestine. The war continues in the Ukraine. There was that horrible story about the sports coach at St Andrews who seems to have been murdered by one of the other employees of the school. And our own circle and family and friends, you know, we could find stories of tragedy really quite close to home. So our world, for all its beauty and goodness, it is clearly a ruined masterpiece of a world. And sometimes the ruined aspect of it can actually overwhelm us. How should we live in a ruined masterpiece of a world? Well, in the second passage, which was just read to us a few moments ago, we see Jesus being in the ruined masterpiece of a world. And we see how he deals with the particular situation he confronts. And from looking at that and hearing what he says, I think we can also glean some lessons ourselves for how we should live in our ruined masterpiece of a world. Now, as most of you will know, uh, this term we're going through uh, some later chapters in the book of Matthew. We're up to chapter 17. We're looking at verses 14 to 23. And I want to think about those verses under four main headings, which are on the handout, which I hope you've received on the way in, but are also up on the screen. Firstly, uh, the world's mess, thinking about verses 14 to 17. Then Jesus' authority, verses 17 to 18. The disciples' weakness, that's verse 16 and then 19 to 20. And then very briefly, the disciples' grief in those last two verses. So let's start by thinking about the world's mess. And I'd like to ask you a question. Have you ever come back from a real high, some mountaintop experience that you've had, to find yourself immersed in a disappointing, discouraging, dismal and even damaging reality or normality? 
Perhaps you went on some really great holiday. You saw some incredible things. You thought some great thoughts. You spent wonderful time with family and friends, only to return home afterwards to a workplace dogged by division, ineptitude and small-mindedness. What a come down. Or perhaps you went to some great Christian conference or house party or something or other, and you came back afterwards fired up about evangelism and discipleship and prayer and world mission. And you find that people at your church are obsessively arguing over the exact location of a church pew or something like that. What a horrible come down. Well, here in this account, just before today's reading, Jesus, Peter, James and John have been up a mountain. The transfiguration has taken place. Uh, the disciples there have seen Jesus in all his dazzling splendour. They have seen Moses and Elijah turn up and be part of the scene. And they have heard God the Father himself speak from heaven, saying, this is my son whom I love, you know, I'm well pleased with him, listen to him. I mean, that is the mountaintop experience to top all mountaintop experiences. But then, it's something of an anticlimax, they come down the mountain and we read the following in verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and suffers greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You know, it's sort of from, not like the sublime to the ridiculous, not that it's ridiculous, it's from the sublime to the disappointingly tragic. They're back within and amidst the messiness of life. There is a horribly afflicted son. The disciples seem to be inept. And in fact, if you go to the equivalent passage in the Gospel of Luke, it sheds even more light on the scene. Sorry, in the Gospel of Mark, sorry. So in Mark chapter 9, we read about this incident as well. And we see that um, there were a large crowd there and the teachers of the law were arguing with them. So afflicted boy, ineffective disciples, big crowd, Jewish religious leaders, arguing, arguing, there's division, all this sort of stuff. And uh, that's the scene. It's a pretty disappointing and depressing scene to come out down the Transfiguration and see that. Now, the scene is not entirely without hope. Uh, the father of the boy has, I think, sensibly, originally tried to take his boy to the disciples. When that doesn't work, he takes him to Jesus and he addresses Jesus as Lord, kneels before him and begs for mercy, all of which are admirable attitudes and qualities. He's showing, you know, real hope and, and faith. But then Jesus gives a very interesting response in verse 17. I wonder when, when you heard it read, it sort of surprised you a bit. He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? And you might sort of ask the question, well, yeah, Jesus seems a bit harsh here. You know, why so harsh? Well, it seems to me, and this is my understanding of uh, those sec that section, I don't think Jesus is addressing the father of the boy here. I don't think he's really focusing on the disciples either. He talks with them later. I think he's addressing the crowd at large. He refers to this unbelieving generation. It's quite a big picture. And we know from Mark's account of this incident, there are a whole lot of arguing and there's a lot of division and the Jewish religious leaders are there sort of, I guess, causing problems. And perhaps Jesus he just sees this whole scene, the whole crowd, the lack of belief, and it reminds him of Israel's general attitude of unbelief towards him. So I think that's what's going on there. 
Now, this incident generally, like pretty much the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible never picks, uh, paints a picture of the world through rose-tinted glasses. Uh, it, you know, it speaks of the high points, like the transfiguration, but also the here devastation, demon possession, division and disappointment. So I think, given that we read the Bible a lot here, we should not be shocked today by the messy nature of the world. The messiness of the world in which we live is exactly what we should expect if so many people in the world reject God and they aren't prioritising loving God and loving their neighbour. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, it says in Ephesians that we're at war against the world, the flesh and the devil. So this is the nature of the world. We should absolutely expect things like Israel and Gaza to be happening all the time. We should expect things like the Ukraine to be happening all the time. We should expect infuriating murders, assaults, pettiness, selfishness, family breakdown. We should expect all these things all the time because of the nature of the world in which we live. We should expect the mess. Christians are realistic. I sometimes think some people are a bit naively optimistic about the world. Christians are realists. But also Christians uh, have realistic belief in genuine hope for change in the world. Just let's go to the Middle East for a moment. Uh, many of you may know of the organisation Hezbollah. It's a uh, Lebanese Shia uh, Muslim group uh, who often employ violence. Uh, I think there are concerns that they may get more involved in the current conflict over in the Middle East. Now, this week, uh, someone from church uh, forwarded this to me, but I watched a video about an ex-Hezbollah ex fighter. Uh, I heard his testimony. So he's someone who used to be with Hezbollah. Uh, in days gone by, he had volunteered to walk on landmines if needed. He'd participated in hanging people. He said that in the old days, he hated Jews. He'd never met a Jew, but he hated them because that's you know, what it was. Well, um, he was messiness personified at that point. And then he decided that he needed to go to America, where he was going to try and convert Christians to, to, to Islam. Uh, but he was uh, uh, arrested in Malaysia. He was found to have 30 passports or something like that. He was arrested. He was put into prison. And incredibly, in prison, he had a vision of Jesus, which you, you hear these things sort of happening occasionally, particularly um, in the Muslim world, it seems. And he had this vision with this man who was very bright. He realised this man was holy and just. He became horribly aware of his own sinfulness. He begged for mercy. He learnt that, his name, that this was Jesus. Uh, and as I, the testimony gives, he became a follower of Jesus, this ex-Hezbollah fighter. What's he doing now? He's involved in promoting good relations between Persians and Jews. So there is change, right? Messiness of life... But Christians have hope of real change. This man is now seeking to love God and to love others across very difficult cultural lines. So we're realists, uh, but we also have real hope. So there's the world's mess. Now, next we get to Jesus's authority in this particular first century scenario. The man says, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into water. And then in verse 18, we're going to hear that Jesus helps him. He rebukes the demon. Now, sometimes people look at passages like this and think, hold on, does this man really have, boy, really have demon possession? Or did he have epilepsy? I mean, it looks like epilepsy, you know, seizures, etc. 
perhaps just in the ancient world, they didn't really understand disease properly, so they called epilepsy demon possession. Now, whatever the case was, Jesus solves it. If it's demon possession, he deals with it. If it's, ep if it's epilepsy, he deals with that. But you should note here that Jesus treats it as a case of demon possession, so I think we should too. You see, if you read through the Gospels, there are accounts of Jesus exercising demons and there are accounts of Jesus healing people of diseases. The Bible distinguishes between the two, okay? It knows there's a difference. But here, it refers to demon possession. So I presume that the, the real root cause here of the problem is uh, some sort of evil spirit. Now, perhaps the evil spirit caused epileptic-like seizures, or perhaps it even gave him the, the epilepsy, amongst other things, no doubt. But Jesus treats the demon as the core problem. He says, bring the boy here to me, verse 17. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. So we see Jesus' authority. Now, this is a good time just to do a quick reflection on the supernatural. Uh, Belief in the supernatural is an interesting one. I wonder whether you think that the majority of Australians believe in a supernatural spiritual world or they don't. You know, if we went down to the shops this afternoon and surveyed people and said, do you think there's a spiritual or supernatural world? What percentage would say yes? What percentage would say no? I've never done it. I don't know. Here's my guess. I think probably two, two thirds of people would say, oh, yeah, I think there's probably some spiritual world, you know. Maybe there, I don't quite know much about it, but I'm sure there's something there. Maybe a third would say, no, I don't think there is anything. Well, uh, for what it's worth, the uh, majority of people around the world today and the majority of people throughout history have no problem believing in the spiritual world. It's just in certain parts of the West today. The Bible is very clear, though, that there is a spiritual world. I mean, for a start, there's God. <laughs> and then there's angels, the Bible talks about. But the Bible also talks about Satan or the devil, and the Bible also talks about demons. So the Bible speaks about the reality of this evil sort of stuff which is around, uh, and demons and the like. Now, how concerned should we as Christians be about um, supernatural evil, Satan and demons? How much should we look into it? Now, my view is that we should look into it to the degree to which the Bible looks into it. So it's good to get to know the Bible's teaching about supernatural evil and demons and Satan, but not to obsess over it. I don't think we need to sort of go super into it and start to speculate and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who we've been thinking about a bit here recently, uh, wrote a famous book called The Screwtape Letters, which I've referred to once or twice. And in the preface to that book, he quite famously says the following. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. I think the key thing is just give it the amount of attention the Bible gives it to them and then leave it at that. And then the key thing in this story is that in this incident and in every other New Testament account where Jesus encounters supernatural evil, Jesus has authority over it. He comes out on top. Now, sometimes in Hollywood movies, you might see the supernatural depicted and sometimes there are battles between supernatural good and supernatural evil and, you know, it's a titanic struggle which usually takes about two hours' worth of movie to resolve and at the end, oh, the good, you know, the good supernatural evil wins at the end. Good stuff, great. But it's not like that in real life with Jesus. When Jesus counters supernatural evil, there is no titanic struggle. He goes, you get out, and the demon goes. It's as simple as that. He has total authority over it. Now, that's a great comfort 
because we can rely and trust that Jesus has authority over spiritual evil. So if we are followers of Jesus, we have no need to be overly fearful of spiritual evil, which we may encounter. Because the God who is with us and the God who is in us is more powerful than those forces which may be around us. Now, I don't think that means that we can't be tempted by supernatural evil, or we can't even be harassed by supernatural evil, uh, but uh, we have the power to overcome and withstand thanks to God and thanks to Jesus, who is miles more powerful uh, and has authority over them. So that is a great comfort, particularly if that is something rather which you have had um, particular dealings with at some time in your life, perhaps even now. So there's Jesus' authority, what a great comfort that is. Then we do have to think about the disciples' weakness here for a while. Because we learn in verse 16 that they couldn't help the boy with the evil spirit. Now, why couldn't they help him? Because back in Matthew chapter 10, which was our first reading, Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples. And in Matthew 10, 1, it said that Jesus gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And then they went out and did it. So in the book of Mark, it describes how the disciples did those very things which they'd been commissioned to do. So, they were exercising demons and healing people in the past. What's the problem here now? Why can't they do it here? And the disciples asked the same question. They said to Jesus in verse 19, why couldn't we drive it out? Now, Jesus' answer is interesting and I think needs a little bit of unpacking. Excuse me for one moment. <coughs> He says, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So it's interesting that Jesus seems to be saying that if they had faith the size of a mustard seed, which I think is proverbially small, it's one of the smallest of seeds, with that amount of faith, they could move a mountain. Now, moving a mountain was proverbial for doing a really, really, really big thing. Now, Jesus says that with a bit of faith, you can do this great stuff. But then that must mean, does that mean that the disciples have, he says, so little faith that they are even smaller amount of faith than a mustard seed. Is that what it's saying? That they haven't even got to the mustard seed level of faith, which will enable them to do great things with their prayer. What's going on here? Now, I think when, this is my spin on this, um, when Jesus says um, that they have so little faith, I think he's suggesting that the sort of faith that they must be displaying at this time is as good as having no faith. Now, I was helped a bit by going to the equivalent passage in the book of Mark. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 29, when they, the disciples ask him, why couldn't we exercise the demon? Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer. So my guess is, putting these two accounts together is, that the disciples hadn't been praying. They hadn't been prayerfully dependent on God when they were seeking to go about their ministry of exorcism. So what were they doing? Well, we don't exactly know. But I can tell you that in the first century, magic was quite a big thing in the Roman Empire. Uh, magic was big in the Greco-Roman world, but actually magic was quite widely practised amongst Jewish people as well. And you might sort of think, well, they shouldn't have been doing that. Doesn't the Old Testament give all these warnings about magic and the like? Well, yes, it does. 
But, you know, people aren't perfect, are they? Uh, there, were quite a few, there are quite a few accounts we can find, or a, number I, a couple I know of anyway, which describe the use of magic amongst Jews. So the Jewish historian Josephus, in one of his works, describes seeing a Jewish person casting a demon out of a person. And the exorcist's method included, I'm quoting here, speaking Solomon's name and reciting the incantations which he'd composed. So in the ancient world and magic, it was all about getting the formula right, saying the right words, doing the right formula. Perhaps the disciples had sort of started to think, oh, it's all about getting the formula right. And they were trying to use a certain set of words rather than praying. Who knows? Or perhaps they had such success on their previous journey out, you know, when they were actually healing people, that they got not God-confident, but they got really self-confident. They thought, aren't we good? Aren't we crash hot? Perhaps they were trying to do it in their own strength. Of course, that's not going to work. Another possibility is that we know that the Jewish leaders were there discouraging them, no doubt. Perhaps they got so discouraged that they lost their faith. Who knows? So um, whatever they did, though, it was as good as no faith. They weren't prayerfully dependent on God as they sought to do it, and they were ineffective. Now, we saw here that it says that if a mustard seed of faith will enable us to move mountains, I should just make a passing comment, which I'm sure um, many of us will appreciate. That doesn't mean that if we pray with a mustard seed's worth of faith that God will give us whatever we want. <laughs> we know that God will always answer things according to his will. And so it's good to pray for things, but we don't always know what God's will is in particular situations. This particularly comes up in the area of prayers for healing. And so it's a good thing to do that we pray for people to be healed, but God may or may not choose to do. We don't know what his will is in a particular situation. So what we can do is pray and leave it ultimately up to him. But the point Jesus is saying here that even with a mustard seed of faith, we can move mountains, which means that our prayers, prayerfully dependent prayers on God, are powerful. And so we need to be prayerfully dependent on God. Now, here's my thought as I was reflecting on my own life and I was reflecting on all of us here. Are we prayerfully dependent on God? Now, when we became Christians, uh, if we're Christians, when we asked Jesus to forgive us and said that we wanted to follow him, we realised that we couldn't save ourselves. We needed Jesus. We prayed to him and we were prayerfully dependent on God, right? So that's, that's a great example of prayerful dependence. But as we go on as Christians, sometimes we can sort of start to move away from prayerful dependence and just start to think, you know, I can do this. I can do it. I know my Bible pretty well. I've had plenty of experience being a Christian or in Christian ministry. And we start to be reliant on our own biblical knowledge or our own ministry experience rather than being prayerfully dependent on God. I mean, I've studied the Bible a fair bit and I've done lots of sermons and done lots of other Christian ministry things and I've got lots of experience. When I'm doing it, am I relying on God or am I relying on my education and experience? If I'm relying on my education and experience, I might look good, but I'm not going to achieve anything of genuine use. But if I'm being prayerfully dependent on God, God can do great things. So the question for you is, because I know many people here have been Christians for decades. Are you being prayerfully dependent on God or are you in a subtler way just relying on your own experience and knowledge and whatever? Something to think about. Now, one of the best ways to test that is to examine our prayer lives and ask what we're praying about and are we praying and are we trying to be prayerfully dependent? So there we go. That's something for me to think about and perhaps you. 
Finally, and very briefly, the last two verses in the passage describe the disciples' grief. Once again, Jesus has predicted that he's going to be killed and rise from the dead. The disciples seem to miss the rise from the dead bit, but they get that Jesus is going to be killed bit. He says, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and on the third day he will be raised to life. And essentially that the disciples were filled with grief. Uh, the last time Jesus said that he was going to die, they said, no, no, that's not going to happen to you. And so it seems to be they've progressed through some of those five stages of grief. You know, the five stages of grief, it goes um, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Well, originally in the first time, that was just denial. That's not going to happen. Now they seem to have gone through to step four, which is grief, um, depression. They've reached that. And so how the disciples continue to go with Jesus and his uh, surprising plans for the future, uh, we'll see over coming weeks as we go through this series. Let me conclude. I open by suggesting we live in a messed up, ruined masterpiece of a world. Now, if within this world we try to fight the world, the flesh and the devil with our own strength, we will be ineffective like the disciples. But what we need to do is to seek to live with prayerful dependence on God and then God can do great things according to his will. So my big idea I've got is the last point on your handout. We must be prayerfully dependent on God. Why don't I pray that that would be the case? Heavenly Father, I pray that um, all of us here, including myself, that we would be prayerfully dependent on you uh, in the messiness and sometimes the horrible messiness of life. Help us to look to you and be prayerfully dependent. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.